0: You are now listening to The Big Data Beard, an O'Reilly Media partner and community sponsor of StrataData and AI conferences around the world. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of our show for a special message from our team. And now your host.
1: I recently saw this commercial here in the United States, and it made this comment about how we used to read physical papers. And I realized that newspapers tend to always be the example that we give about physical versus digital. We still need the newspapers, but we as consumers just want better newspapers. This is one of the many reasons why I'm so happy to have our special guest, Greg Dufoss, with us um, today. So Greg is a CTO of the Globe and Mail, which is a newspaper that's based in Toronto, Canada. Greg has a background in data analytics and he clearly understands the impact of data. So Greg, let me pause um, because my bearded co-host Corey Mitten and I would love for you to introduce yourself to the audience.
2: Hi, everyone. Greg Dufas. <clears throat> and as you said, I'm the CTO at The Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper. Uh, and The Globe has been around for 170 years, which is a little known fact, but uh, but uh, but known well uh, across across our beautiful country here in Canada. Uh, my background is in computer science and data science. I've worked in telecommunications and high tech. And I, uh, I took this adventure about five years ago, joining The Globe uh, to sort of launch their data analytics uh, data science capability, uh, and that turned out pretty well. So they kept giving me more stuff to do, and uh, and here I am today, sort of owning you know owning the whole bag when it comes to uh, technology and data and all the pretty amazing, remarkable things that we do um, with technology at the Globe and any media company uh, in the uh, in the year 2018 will tell you that we we do a lot more. Um, with, uh, with computer science, user experience. Um, and, uh, and frankly, uh, finding ways to take the internet seriously to to do what we do as a as a media organization.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. So some companies in this digital age are redefining themselves or giving them these, these like new descriptors, right? So does the Globe and Mail identify itself as a newspaper or like by something else?
2: Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll always be a newspaper that that uh, beautiful printed product. Uh, and anybody that sees the Globe and Mail's newspaper with something that we're really proud of, it'll always be our crown jewel, it still makes us a lot of money. So we'll always be at heart a, a newspaper company. But um, like most organizations, like most of our um, sort of contemporaries, um, the Washington Post, New York Times, there in the states. We uh, we are a media company. We're changing. It's about audio. It's there are visuals. There's uh, design actually means something. We surface our content through multiple ways in responsive web formats. So uh, it is uh, it is truly a media company. Visuals and sound and and um, and video and all those and all those things that come with what you need to do to be able to tell stories.
1: Yeah that's awesome. So, you know, my next question was obviously in this digital age your organization has been impacted, right? But not only is it are you seeing people read less papers or you see more viewers now that you have these different formats or how is that working?
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, there will always be, there, there has been and will probably continue to be for a little bit uh, a decline in newspaper readership. But it's, uh, it's still holding pretty strong. And there's many of us that think that that might actually plateau. It might be something that people just can't, you know, there's something really habitual about that, uh, yeah. uh, that newspaper sort of lean back experience. People spend on average about 45 minutes uh, a day with a physical newspaper and you don't get even close to that in digital platforms but our reach and our readership uh, from a digital perspective is massive and something that obviously we, we're not even close to from a printed perspective. So, um, again, uh, what's what stays true to the heart of what we do is the journalism. It's investigative journalism, it's business and investing journalism. Uh, again, the Globe is a is a very prominent and well-respected brand in Canada. Uh, I also in research, so I, I will never stop being amazed uh, and fascinated by um, the uh, the customer satisfaction and trust scores that we get in all of our mm. uh, in all of our custom custom surveys. So that that sort of applies across platforms, whether it's on uh, Ink or Pixels. Uh, our, our audience does love our brand, and we need to be where they are. So the, again, the journalism doesn't change. We need to surface it, um, but uh, it's being surfaced across multiple platforms now, and and obviously digital is where the growth is.
1: Right. So what were, what was like one of the reasons why data analytics became such a large part of the globe and mail?
2: yeah think about you know how does a, how does a newspaper how does a media company make money uh, our business model was pretty simple it has been for again 170 years we produce this newspaper and uh, we sell it to people and sometimes we don't even sell it to people we just want it to get into people's hands because uh, we also make revenue and generate revenue through advertising so we tell our advertisers hey this is a great platform for you to advertise on we have a high quality audience these people are uh, influencers and leaders of of today and leaders of tomorrow, which is the globe uh, readership. So if you pay us money and you put an ad on our paper, it's going to get to the most influential people in the country, and that's always the way it's been on print, and it hasn't really changed that much, even though the platforms have evolved from a digital perspective. Obviously, uh, digital advertising is uh, is not nearly as lucrative as as what it has been on print. So subscription revenue is a key driver, and frankly, the 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 core uh, to our business model from a from a digital perspective, uh, but that. 45 minutes a day that you would be getting in print, uh, you're lucky to get, you know, five to 10 minutes in some cases uh, in digital. So, how do you do that? You need to understand what drives engagement, uh, what it is, those moments of delight, like what is that, what does it take to get people to spend a little bit more time on their phone, on a tablet, on a desktop computer, uh, web versus apps. Uh, There is so much data. So, unlike what it used to be back in the days where the news was the was the sole sort of marquee product you do some research and you would look at that maybe every six months or every year you'd go out and do some brand research and it would end up in a in a glossy PowerPoint deck and you would learn a little bit about your audience and you know make some adjustments along the way Uh, in a digital environment you need to do that quickly so on a on a real-time basis we're analyzing customer information we're analyzing engagement loyalty what does it take what are people interested in what's working what isn't and we need to adapt quickly in real time so it's uh, it's all the stuff that we we always knew we needed to care about in terms of that 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 sort of audience that community interaction with what we do with our journalism but it's on steroids
1: yeah so I was just interested though sorry about the um, real-time aspect because I keep thinking like sometimes when I look at newspapers online, They sometimes they'll give you like a free preview or they'll let you read the article and they'll only let you read like five articles a a month or something along those lines. Do do you have like a model like that? And obviously what your assumption is that they're going to keep coming back and then want to buy a subscription or something along those lines?
2: That's absolutely right. So we have a, much like the Washington Post or the New York Times are sort of the best examples out there, uh, popular examples, we do have a paywall. So we meter our paywall and we have different rules. And there's a great example for how we use data and the power of data science. Uh, we know exactly what um, what sorts of content is more likely to drive more engagement and then frankly uh, uh, the, a higher propensity to purchase of subscription. So uh, our model is highly flexible and dynamic. On average, it's about five articles per month is what we allow. But we also have the concept of subscriber-only content. So while some articles you read will sort of add to that meter, and once you hit five, we'll give you a very specific, very tailored offer based on your reading habits that we We've been uh, that we've been analyzing and tracking and responding to in real time. We also use that data so that in real time, as content is published, there are, there are some pieces of content that are so valuable in our eyes and to our audience's eyes that we lock that down completely. So even if you haven't read a single article this month at the Globe and Mail, if you visit our website, there are some articles that have a little key next to it, and you can't read it at all without buying a subscription. And we know exactly how to sort of push and pull those levers, How much is too much and what are the right articles to sort of uh, put behind that subscriber only uh, locked box? We use data and analytics. We understand audience interaction and how much they value that content to make those decisions.
0: So it's interesting because you're, you're using it's your revenue model, right? It was advertising, right? Getting the right person to see the right thing at the right time so that your advertisers want to spend more money, which I think we were all led to believe Facebook invented that process. So that's kind of interesting uh, that it was around <laughs> of for course new, they did. New, newspapers, uh, the digital, the, the digital natives all thought it was Facebook and Zuckerberg that figured that out first. <laughs> but one of the things I find interesting though, is that you said that the, whether ink or pixels, the journalism doesn't change mm-hmm. and What I'm curious about is the data analytics that you're talking about using, you know, the, you know, the customer interaction or your user interaction, how do you marry that with like workflow or like the process of actually understanding, like, what is that, like, what is valuable? And how do you measure what's valuable in terms of the content you're building? Cause the journalism's all the same, whether you're printing it or you're digitizing it, but your ability to flex and put it in the right place at the right time is clearly different by format.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The, you know it's, it's interesting for a technologist like me or, or in this conversation with, with, uh, with people like yourselves, uh, you may be surprised in hearing somebody like me say, at the end of the day, I understand and I believe that people aren't, our readers aren't purchasing subscriptions and keeping those subscriptions because we have a beautiful user experience or beautiful designs or fantastic data science. They're buying it because of the journalism. That is what people want to pay for. But um, they will leave you or they will judge you harshly when it comes to um, 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 taking account for that subscription uh, if the experience isn't right. So what we do is we look at all of the interactions that our audience has with our product, again, in real time, but also historically to make decisions on what we did work and works and what we did that hasn't worked. So at any given point in time on the Globe and Mail, and you mentioned Facebook, and they're pretty famous for this too. At any given time, as you visit the Globe and Mail, there could be hundreds of experiments running on our site, whether it's A-B experiments, or multivariate experiments. We're always running experiments. We're trying to understand what works, uh, what doesn't, uh, and we quickly react to the success or failure of those experiments so that we can keep doing the things that are working obviously and stop doing the things that are failing. So we can fail really, really quickly. And that way you learn a lot and that muscle memory builds over time. So
0: I guess I'm curious though, like in the newspaper business, were you, were newspapers doing AB? Were they doing testing like that before? Or is it really this new digital landscape that's empowered us to like play those games that data scientists love to play
2: yeah it's a great question and it truly digital has allowed us to do this let's face it but we can we can watch those uh people vote with their clicks without knowing that they're voting based on their interactions and that's why whenever i've talked to either either any of our large advertisers or or any of our contemporaries in the industry when we sort of share our stories the, the the reality is you know the, the 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 analogy that i used a little while ago around uh you know back in the in the soul solely print days pre-digital, all you had was research. I mean you would do the typical focus groups or you would call people with surveys and you would sort of compile that data and information. And then maybe after a few weeks you would, you know, look at things in an aggregate form to sort of see what's working. And then if you wanted to make an adjustment, if you want to redesign the paper, anything from the color, the shape, or the font of that paper, you would do that and that would take a few months. So the cadence Uh, The cadence of those experiments and they were experimenting yes, but the cadence of the experiments would take months and then of course in order to see Did you actually have an effect on your bottom line on customer satisfaction and reader behavior? Well, then you would wait another few months to do that research all over again, so um, uh, What an amazing thing it is in a digital environment to be able to wake up in the morning Walk into work as our data scientists and our UX designers do and think you know what? I think that um, Uh, I think that our images, our little thumbnail images and certain article pages, uh, they're too small. What what would happen if we made them a little bit bigger? What would happen if we add a little bit of weight and texture down that page as people scroll uh, on their mobile phones? Would we get people to stay a little bit longer? Would they finish that article? So we can think of the experiment, launch the experiment, and analyze the results of the experiment sometimes within hours.
1: So you you definitely the experiments are based on their device that they're using, right? So obviously a phone's going to be smaller than you know a tablet or a laptop or something along those lines. So you how are you testing those?
2: Yeah, so uh, you know at the heart of every experiment, if you were to walk into our user experience lab, it's a really creative, fun place um, where it's uh, it's 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 you know it's nothing but uh, but whiteboards and ideas and things that we track. The first thing that we talk about is what is the outcome we're trying to achieve? So there could be multiple ones. Again, we have a hybrid business model. We want to sell ads, obviously, and make them most effective. We also want to sell subscriptions. Well, our advertising clients love time. So the amount of time that people are spending on a page that has an ad on it is of more value. So one experiment's outcome could be on a mobile phone, on a certain article page where we have this beautiful premium ad spot, what we want to design an experiment experiment to optimize for is time spent and we will count every second, every millisecond of time spent on that page. So that's what we're optimizing for. And then we just brainstorm, we hypothesize what are the things that we think could drive that outcome on other pages, perhaps even on other devices like desktop, which tends to drive more subscription sort of activity or events. uh, We want to optimize for subscriptions. So what is it that we could do on those pages or in those experiences to optimize and drive for that outcome? So again, if you were to sit in our UX lab and watch the data scientists, UX designers, and our digital developers think, the first thing that they want to itemize, the first thing that's core to all of the hypotheses and experiments they run, is the 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 outcome, the business outcome that we're trying to optimize for. That's the first thing, and then you can be as creative as you want to um, to think of ways to uh, to get there.
0: So I'm I'm curious because it sounds like one sounds like a super cool environment, but it sounds like you're dealing with a a deluge of options and a, and a mountain of data that, you know, you're getting on, you know, the interactions, cross device, cross platform, it, it seems really, really big. And one of the things that when we talk about, when we talk to other practitioners that are solving and dealing with these, these big challenges is that we're starting to see organizations adopt, you know, machine learning capabilities to automate some of those problem testing scenarios and the, you know, identifying what the right next thing to try is, is that any, th- have you guys started looking at ways to automate and leverage, you know, whether it's machine learning technology, or if you want to use artificial intelligence technology to, to expedite some of that, that search or some of that, that ability for your creative teams to um, instead of having to run every experiment, start to evaluate how experience might model out.
2: Yeah, that, absolutely it's funny in in my career I really never thought I would uh um I'd be in a position where working in a media organization or a, a a what used to be and historically has been a newspaper where we would be about as cutting edge as anything I've ever done in high tech and communications and mobile technology where we had um uh we had some pretty pretty impressive teams there as well. So think about recommendation engines. Uh we know when you visit our site, uh we can you know, obviously, we will track behavior and track usage from a, at an individual level. Uh, and we know exactly what you're looking at. We know exactly what your interests are, how much time you spent. So not just the things that you've clicked on, but how, how engaged were you on those things? Uh, and we have a very robust, very advanced um a big data environment, a cloud environment, where not only can we track those things and look at them historically and apply them to our experiments, but we can actually react and act on those things. So really exciting for people like me, where all you really have ever wanted to do in your career as a technologist is change the product. Can I actually influence the design of the product based on on data and insight, Uh, not just gut and intuition? And so what we're able to do is apply uh, apply those practices Practices to the actual product itself. So, again, you're on a device, you're reading an article page. Uh, at the bottom of the article, you'll see a section called Next Story. Well, all three of us will have different Next Story elements or links within our experience because our real time algorithms are processing each of our uh, sort of our behavior stack and then applying recommendations, content recommendations uh, to our experiences individually. So, you're absolutely right. What what began as an AB experiment uh, a couple of years ago, hey, you know, at the bottom of the page, if we actually offer somebody some really popular relevant links, uh, and everyone would get the same, but they were different than random links being applied to all of us, we actually saw some lift in that engagement. And then, I'll cut to the chase and say that evolved to the point that we said, what if a machine did that thinking for us? And what if every one of our seven and a half, eight million unique visitors per month saw a different recommendations. So that's just one example, a large, I would say 80% of our section pages and article pages, about 80% of them are actually machine generated, machine curated. Uh, And we leave the hand curation, the craftsman sort of curation to the homepage and a couple of other major section fronts. And that's where our editorial teams will make uh, their own sort of uh, bespoke decisions around how to design and curate those pages. Yes. So
1: I was just curious. Um, Because you're saying, obviously, there's been so much that's been going on in the since you've been there, right? Five years. And certainly with regard to data analytics, how has the org changed at all from that aspect? And have you like added additional roles? Like sometimes we talk about like a chief data officer, have you added like roles like that? Because now that you're more focused from a data perspective, has that changed the org as a whole?
2: Uh, fundamentally, so no, none of the things that I've just described existed five years ago when I joined. That's why they hired me. So I joined as the director of data science, uh, and things worked out really well. This technology, this uh, the concepts around experimentation, uh, the idea that we can uh, collect this data, instrument all of our experiences to be able to listen uh, and collect all of this, all of these events, and then process that and think really creatively about what. Could we do with this in a passive way and then evolve that into well what could we do with this in an active way so not just look at it in spreadsheets or build uh sort of predictive models that will tell us things about what drives a subscription event or what drives more time but then actually you know apply that learning into the device and the experience at the same time all of those things really represent an evolution and funny you say um the uh you know, the subsequent role that I had within the organization was the chief data officer. So uh, I give a lot of credit to our publisher and CEO uh, and to our own board uh, for for uh, believing uh, so much in the value of what we were doing on the data side that um, uh, as I sort of evolved and my career, uh, sort of progressed in the organization that, uh, that the, the big fancy senior title that I had before chief technology officer was chief data officer. It was that important technology was almost like, yeah, why don't you do the rest of that stuff too?
0: So, and the rest of the stuff is the, uh, is the data science team <laughs> being tasked with, uh using machine learning and automated or artificial intelligence to start to create content?
2: That's, that's, well, yeah, I mean, to create the experience. So think about- No, I mean like writing, (laughs) like
0: journalism. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, that that could be, it would be an interesting experiment to run for sure. But uh, they they work hand in hand with our developers. We have an amazing, very, very talented team of front end web developers, uh, a fantastic uh, user experience design team. I mean, uh, think about left brain, right brain, right? Watching the data science team work with a design team Uh, naturally these people are almost complete opposites but hearing them talk uh you you would almost have a hard time Uh, guessing what role any one person had on those teams, because the UX designers think in terms of, you know, statistical significance uh, with the experiments that they're running. And the data science team is always thinking very creatively about, well, what could I do with this algorithm? Or what could I do uh, with this sort of uh, this deep learning technique that I just learned that might help us, you know, evolve the experience? So they all work really, really closely together. and, uh, and And there are very few boundaries anymore, I think, on the team.
0: So that's interesting. The inter team thing is is something we hear practitioners talk about a lot. That's one of the biggest challenges. We've had, you know, data scientists say, you know, hey, it's it's important for everybody to understand business. Business folks saying we wish we knew more about data science. It sounds like you've done something really special there. Is there like some specific methodology or process that you followed that has has fostered such a a healthy interaction. And what, like you said, this chameleon where it's hard to tell the teams apart, is that like, how do you create something like that? What advice would you give for practitioners trying to achieve something similar, uh, in terms of getting those, to like you said, left, right, left and right brain, very distinct team types mm-hmm. to work together. What would be your best advice?
2: Well, a, a few things. First of all, I mean, we. I keep using the term evolution, and uh, I don't think I'm overusing it. It really was an evolution. We, we hired new people. I mean, the people that... Uh, the people that we hire and when we look to attract talent, we want curiosity above all. And so a lot of the things come naturally when you have that core principle or that core sort of um, belief that that, uh, I need to be, it's an expectation within the job to be curious. And so they'll always want to reach out. Well, and the other thing, which, which, uh, in, in a lifetime of, of, of sort of data science, uh, experience professionally, uh, you got to show them what it means. So one of the first things that we did as we were building the data science team was be really, really practical. So yes, somebody like me wants to get right into the sort of algorithmic, um, Uh, um, sort of exciting work that you can do with large data sets that are coming at you and uh, sort of at high velocity in real time. Like it's really exciting to get into that stuff. But you know what? You got to accept the fact that this is an organization that's still learning how to count really well so you have to deal with that. This is, you know, we needed to figure out a way. Yeah, I mean, you needed to figure out a, a way to explain to people exactly what our readers are doing and what it matters, you know, why it matters. And so uh, that, was as, that was as important as anything. You, you got to take the right steps in the beginning uh, to show people really what it means to them. And the third thing, which, by the way, we I, 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 I sometimes forget, but frankly, maybe one of the most important things, especially when it comes to the intra-team uh, sort of conversation culture that we built is literally where they sit and where they work. We made these people sit next to each other. We put them in the same space and it was a very creative space. So uh, we have um, we have some really cool we, we, we work in this beautiful new building the Globe and Mail Centre. We have an event space upstairs, a beautiful view of the city and uh, we specifically bought furniture that you could literally write on and then erase with a dry marker. So we want people to write on the walls. We want people and everything can be erased so it's not like we're it's not like we're a building graffiti, but we wanted it to be a place that you couldn't do anything where you can't break a thing here, break anything you want. And so uh, that really helped people get out of their shells. And it's amazing what happens when, when people spend some time in close proximity. So now that
1: you've made all these changes, which I'm pretty sure I would like to apply for a job um, <laughs> at Globe and Mail, so... Have you seen like any changes like now? So it's been five years. Uh, you've really proven a lot. You've shown just the impact. You've built out this really great team, um, even shown how you're working um, has an effect on things. Has data analytics changed other parts of the company?
2: Yeah, I mean, the editor- so one of the things, you know, I, I, again, I worked in, uh, I worked at BlackBerry for many years, another proud Canadian company back in the good old days. Uh, and I remember being there and again, very similar sort of role. Uh, we had access to all this data, massive amounts of data. Um, you know what we want to do is 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 create great insight from it, but also then apply that data into the device, into the experience and the product itself. And I remember um, people warning me in my first few weeks that boy, those product engineers, uh, those guys are the you know the, these men and women were really tough. Like you better bring your A game at eight o'clock because they won't change what they do no matter how great your data is. That is what they do, and it's really hard to penetrate. And we did, and and, and we ended up cracking it. Well, that was nothing compared to working with journalists. They're, these people are naturally curious, they're naturally uh, cautious, sometimes borderline cynical. I mean, think of what they do for a living, they're interrogating everything, they're suspicious of everything. They're getting to the bottom of the story, like what's the, a journalist never wants to bury the lead and never trusts anything. They are verifying and looking at multiple sources, they're getting to the story behind the story behind the story. So imagine and, uh working and joining a, an organization where these are the people i'm trying to influence so that was uh, that was a, a big challenge but uh, it's amazing what uh, a few cups of coffee gets you learning their world and understanding what it means to copy edit and what it means to be running on a deadline uh, or how difficult it is to sort of get a scoop I mean really showing some some curiosity and passion for what they do went a really long way and then guess what when you're able to demonstrate hey you know I can tell you some things about the people that are reading your stories well who wouldn't want to know, right? Like who doesn't have a, yeah, a, no, uh, a sense of professional pride. Of course they want to know, of course they want to know, well, who is reading my story and what makes them tick and what did they really like? Uh, then it actually became easy. And, but one of my, my, literally my best friend within the organization is the editor in chief. We, the David Wamsley and I have a fantastic relationship and it's, uh, and it's really built on trust.
0: So one, one thing's, it's funny, you said, you know, you could, you could provide that feedback to the journalists about their audience and about, you know, kind of what their consumption is and, and hopefully help them <clears throat> learn something from their audience on their perceptions on what they want to read. But one of the things that we see a lot now is um, this concept of, of fake news or kind of these bloviated stories where journalistic integrity has fallen down. Is there things you're doing in technology to help protect the journalistic integrity and to help protect and make sure that your content is is, is kept whole and is is presented as intended. Is that a value or is that something that technology is working to provide back to those journalists?
2: Yes, I mean, uh, absolutely. So when you think of, I mentioned the, this fantastic uh, research that you get, if you ever really want to feel good about yourself at, at work at the Globe and Mail, you just read some of the, the reader satisfaction and affinity scores that we get. And the number one attribute, not just for us, but for any media brand, for any media brand, the number one attribute that a is looking for when they choose their media sort of provider uh, is trust trust, uh, are you well written, is there integrity behind the brand, um, are the journalistic standards high? That's what people are looking for. And it's amazing what's happened over the last couple of years with the sort of the proliferation of fake news and bots and all the crazy things that are happening on the social networks. More and more people are turning back to those big brands. And of course, there's always sort of, you know, some degree of of bias, natural bias that somebody will say or will see when they compare you know, the New York Times to the Washington Post to CNN to Fox News. There's always a bit of a, uh, of a slant that, that people will perceive. But at the end of the day, I think it's those old newspaper, uh, newspaper brands are really making a comeback. And, uh, and ours is, is definitely one of them. One of the things that, that the newsroom cares about most is knowing you know how do we how do we appropriately identify and present our mix of content in the way uh, so that it uh, that that sort of trust factor that brand factor shines especially on things like our homepage so those things are are taken very very seriously um, how we how we integrate our platform our content into search engines and social media all of those things are applied so how we deal with metadata uh, around a story so that it's, you know, found and indexed in a Google search. Um, and even back the, right down to the journal. So one of the things that we do to, to answer your question really specifically is highlight the journalists. So these people are, are, are people that have dedicated their lives to journalism. Uh, and so, yeah, there is something to be said. I think it's amazing that anyone uh, in their own uh, basement or in their own uh, kitchen can create content and publish it and tell their own stories. That's a, And that's an amazing thing. That's the story of the internet. But at the end of the day, the journalists that work at these news newspapers have actually dedicated their lives to this craft. And there is something to be said about the profession and the integrity um, and what it takes to really chase a lead and tell a story and to be able to stand behind the truth behind that story. Uh, and so letting the journalists shine in the content and letting people sort of explore who our our personalities are, who these journalists are, has actually been key. So I was,
1: I was curious, though, you know, looking into the future, you've done so much in the past five years. Where What are you planning for the next five years with You've learned so much from the data. You've learned, you've built out an amazing team, an amazing office, you know, these amazing capabilities. How do you continue to sustain that and support that? And to achieve even greater growth within the next five years.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think there's a couple of things that I I suspect every media organization will be chasing. So uh, as much as as a visionary, I'd like to I'd like to think of myself. This is uh, I think any CTO worth their salt in this industry is going to be thinking about two things. First is sort of data driven content. In some cases, it could just be it's good old fashioned investigative journalism, but backed up through by by, by data. So data, data science and journalism together, you can tell stories with data, uh, and, uh, and to find a way to sort of present something really, really meaningful to your audience by, by sort of combining the two. And the other extreme to that could be data is the story. So, um, our readers love, uh, love alerts. So if you, um, if you have apps on your mobile phone and you sort of agree to let, uh let the uh the news provider send you an alert um a lot of our readers say that they love them and if you do that right you can inundate people with alerts news flashes and news alerts but if you do it right um uh people really find them engaging well how about um i think the future will be the alerts will be very custom to you so not just uh you know yeah let me know when there's a big you know, know, there's a tsunami somewhere in the world and I'd like to know about it. How about something really, really specific to what your interests are or what you care about? Or it could be something very local to your neighborhood that you're most interested in. Or maybe it's something halfway around the world that you are most interested in. I think that the, the, the customization and personalization of news delivery to you will become key. And then the uh, the second thing, which is a big uh, passion of mine, and I honestly believe this is this is the future for for media and journalism, is you know, we've talked about uh, content recommendations and all of us getting different sort of lists of content that are being um, sort of applied to our experience. I think the future is the actual experience itself will be different for all of us. So, um, you know, you like lots of pictures and images in the homepage or the screen. um, And somebody else might actually love, uh, uh, you know what, forget the images. I just want a bunch of links. I'm a plain vanilla kind of guy. I just want to see a bunch of links, and I'll click on the one I want. Spare me uh, all the razzle dazzle. Uh, some people might like to read stories by swiping to the left. Some people might like doing that swiping to the right or up or down. If we know how people uh, most engage and are, are, are most likely to engage with that, uh, you could actually apply that algorithmically within the experience. So um, there you have it. I think in five so- years, if uh, if we're lucky, uh, that's where that's where we'll be. Uh, we'll be. Making some inroads.
0: I can tell you which ones will want to swipe. It's the all Tinder users will want to swipe <laughs> on your uh, on your platform. Yeah. So, I, so, I, so I appreciate the insights on the the media uh, trends. One of the things I wanted to pick your brain up because, as a practitioner in the data space and as a CTO, uh, you know our audience oftentimes wants to hear from folks about where do you keep like how do you keep yourself up to speed on technology what are the places where you're going to learn about these next generation technologies and capabilities not just for your industry but in in general for technology what are your best sources for uh for your own personal uh, development education
2: oh, it's it's funny you should say uh, unfortunately i am going to cheat and bring it back to the industry the the reality. so uh a hero of mine somebody that i've idolized since I was um, uh, uh, a young guy coming out of school. Was Jeff Bezos? He was someone that uh, uh, that I thought I, I wanted to be, and I and I admired him from afar. And um, and then I. I had a, an aptitude for this um, for this this line of work, and I pursued it through sort of all sorts of fantastic um, large again telecommunications, mobile technology companies, and then I come to a newspaper, a media company, and I thought, well, this is an interesting experiment. Then Jeff Bezos buys the Washington Post and he uh he brings all of the jeff bezos sort of philosophy to the washington post he tells them to build software to build systems uh that you use to sort of workflow and create sort of the content and the experiences the they call it the content management system everyone has one and everyone hates it and so when he bought the post he actually challenged their technology team why don't you build your own and then uh, and then that worked really well they called it arc and they did great job they hired hundreds of engineers to build it and then we came along and they were thinking about selling this uh this platform potentially taking it to market and what better organization what better country to sort of maybe pilot this and so we bought arc and we are partners with the washington post and so when i take a trip which i'm going to be taking next week to see my colleagues at the washington post i get access to all of this great thinking and really advanced sort of uh sort of a philosophical approach that mr bezos has brought to that organization from the cto on down who's who's become a very good friend of mine so um, Um, I really look forward to trips to DC. It's a place that's really exciting. The Post is a a really exciting place to be. And you can't name a cutting edge buzzword that they aren't experimenting with. Whether it's VR, whether it's data-driven journalism, Audio, video, they're doing podcasts, they're doing really, really advanced things with data science. Uh, And his influence, Mr. Bezos' influence, is all over the organization. So how ironic that it's in a newspaper that I now have a certain degree of access to that philosophy into the person that I've always idolized. So it's a really exciting place to be. And uh, uh, those cats are are really, really cutting edge. And so um, walking into the post is a pretty exciting place for any technologist.
1: Yeah, that's cool. And I th- but I think it's interesting. You had talked a little bit about like partnerships. Are there any like non traditional partnerships that you have with the you know the Globe and Mail has with other companies?
2: Yeah. So uh, obviously the Washington Post and all the great things that they do. Uh, and our other major partner, and uh, in some cases for by necessity, but in and uh, in many cases, I think that we're we're about as cutting edge on the platform as as anyone else, as Amazon. So obviously, we're uh, or maybe not obviously. It's for us. We've chosen Amazon Cloud Services as the platform uh, for all of our data science infrastructure, and frankly, a lot of our infrastructure. The Arc Content Management System that I speak of, well, of course, that sits on Amazon. Uh, so we work pretty closely with them to make sure that we have access to all uh, sort of the latest techniques, whether it's uh, you know facial recognition or speech to speech to text or text to speech. Frankly, all of the those things are very, very meaningful to us. And so it's pretty exciting. We're, we're always at the forefront of all the cutting edge sort of machine learning, uh, machine generated ways to either understand content or create it.
1: You know, to go a little um, off topic a little bit, one of the things that I always love to know, we always like hear like great stories and how successful you've been and everything. What are some of the mistakes that you've learned that you think that uh, are important for the audience to understand?
2: Oh, that's that's a great question. Uh, there is such a thing as tools overload. It, so I joined the I joined the Globe and Mail. Um, five years ago and here I am thinking well I'm gonna I'm gonna really change this place these people are probably um, uh, they probably have no idea how to use data or information and it's gonna be easy uh, I'm gonna introduce a whole bunch of things and yeah those you know the challenge will be how do you get people to sort of adopt it and I was shocked within the first week as I sort of looked at what people were, were doing it was quite the opposite they they had too many tools I mean that website was tagged with with maybe five or six different Different tools. There's there's Adobe products and, um, and Google products and all sorts of other products whose brands I won't mention. But uh, literally anyone in the in the in the business, from the newsroom to finance to marketing, they had access and were potentially using five different tools, all to sort of tell them the same sorts of things about how many people were reading and at what time and what content. So. Uh, that that is uh, that can sometimes be a very attractive thing the cost to entry is very easy loading up your website or your product for lack of a better term and instrumenting it with all of this sort of data tagging software that gives you all of this real-time insight quote-unquote it's uh, it's something that a lot of people get get sucked into the brochure is always really really attractive so uh, and and we've we've made the same mistakes along the way as we sort of right-size the degree of that sort of Um, uh, uh, tooling that we've done on our site, Uh, we've often double-dipped ourselves and tried maybe too many ways or too many uh, tools, uh, software packages, to get to the core data that we really, really wanted.
1: We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal in a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew.
2: So excited about the rapid fire! Uh, <laughs> you're <laughs> so sweet. Part of this conversation. Nobody ever says
1: that.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're, you're really sh- you're really showing your Canadian right now. Yeah. Just to be honest. Well, this is where it's
1: going to come through. I was like, no, "Oh, that's true." <laughs> I was like, "Ooh, drum roll! Let's see what he can answer." Right. So, um, the first question is: wh- What year will Skynet go online?
2: <laughs> Skynet will. Uh, Skynet will. Um, I don't believe Skynet will go online. So how about my answer is infinity? It's not going to happen.
1: See, oh. that's that's what I think. That's yeah. That makes me
0: you. feel better. And I, honestly, we've talked to a few data science focused people and some people have like this definitive like it's 2030 like it's definitely <laughs> happening then and then a lot of yeah. people are that's like, nah, never happening not true
2: yeah so, i i i mean uh, the news today uh, depending on how these uh, your podcast is time stamped I'm, I'm i'm i have a tv in front of you i'm watching mr zuckerberg on uh, trial fielding questions i think uh, i think i i think people are 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 um, are far more exposed to what this sort of, uh, the very inside baseball world of data science is starting to become more and more exposed. I think that's a good thing. I think, I think more and more people will, uh, be more and more careful about where technology goes and, and the dangers and pitfalls, um, that, uh, that, that any smart technology, any evolution takes us to. So there you go. There's my Skynet answer.
1: No, I agree. Now I'm with you on that one. Um, so when was the last book that you read?
2: Oh, um, Fantastic book. Uh, Just this summer uh, on a vacation um, in Florida, I read a book called Annihilation Science Fiction. uh, Pretty fantastic. They just made a movie out of it that was also pretty great. Um, And uh, it was um, it was uh, my kind of thing. Annihilation.
1: Huh. Will you Google that and tell me what it is, what it is Corey. It I'm, trying look, like, I'm trying to look it up immediately.
2: I'm like, Annihilation. It
0: sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, oh, we got a snort in there, by the way. That was yeah, impressive. We worked that out. Podcast can now be published with a bank It's a good snort. day.
1: Finally. <laughs> uh, so, Greg, what's the genre of music that you're rocking to now?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I uh, I, I love music and I love all of it. Um I am into, uh, right now, very. I'll get very specific to answer the question. Specific, I am into uh, alternative British rock. I, uh, I've always uh, been a big Radiohead fan, and uh, I'm listening to a lot of Radiohead these days. Wow! Mm. Sweet, good choice. Although That's there, impressive. although there's, there's an artist that I just saw um, that I'm quite familiar with, uh, and his name is Sturgill Simpson. And, oh, uh, speaking my love language, I sure. Sturgill Simpson has got it going on. Sturgill Simpson is an exciting guy to watch. He, I've seen him perform as well, and that guy, um, yeah, that, that yeah, th- there you go, uh, every, genres. Every-
0: Every time my wife and I get in the car on a long road trip with the kids, we put on Sturgill Simpson's "Long White Line." That's
2: exactly oh, right. Yeah,
0: that's a good tune. That's like the it's like the Willie Nelson of our generation. It's incredible.
2: That's right. So from Radiohead to Sturgill Simpson, there you go. I'm an eclectic guy. There you go.
1: That's nice. So what's the piece of technology that's making your life worse?
2: Oh my! Uh, uh, ooh, I should be careful in saying this, considering it's yes. my business, but. Uh, my, my mobile phone, I, uh, I'm, um, I'm someone that, uh, is, uh, is quite attached to it. And again, it's, it's a part of the part of my job, but, um, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm monitoring the Slack channels and all of our, oh, yeah. uh, development releases and code releases and, uh, and SOS channels for when things go wrong in production. I run, uh, I run a business that's a 24 seven operation. So as a CTO, that cell phone is not as fun as it used to be.
1: No, I can imagine. Yeah, I do love
2: Slack though. I must admit Slack is cool. Yeah. It's somebody... a company, of course. Yeah. Yeah, naturally. Hey,
0: <laughs> they just they apologize after every message I send. It's incredible.
1: <laughs> They're so nice, though. Um, so, what's your biggest money pit right now?
2: Personal money pit. Oh, that's interesting. Probably my car. I'm um I'm a car guy, and I own a pretty cool sports car. But um, uh, All this right. is don't the...
0: don't let you gotta unpack this one. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a I'm a gearhead. Come on, let's do this.
2: So, I own a 2017 uh, Mercedes C 63 AMG. Oh yeah,
0: buddy. Uh, uh,
2: It's a modern day. absolutely. It's a modern day muscle car. The thing sounds like a, like a pack of bears. Um, but it, uh, it likes its premium fuel and, uh, and any service will cost you about a hundred times more than, uh, what my Jeep used to cost me. So, um, so there you go, but it's a happy money pit. I I'm happy for the money pit.
0: So are you so – you, have you taken it out on a track to really let it loose yet or
2: uh, – Not yet. Like I picked it up last summer and so this will uh, – now that we're past sort of a, a pretty fr- – frankly, a pretty mild Canadian winter, I think that'll let her out. Oh, yeah.
0: Do it. Well, you, you'll find out the uh, the other expensive thing.
2: <laughs> tires. Those big boys. Well, tires and
0: brakes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> the brakes are the first things to go. Absolutely. That, the C63 is like a modern muscle car in the sense that it is – Tons of power, but getting that big girl to slow down and go through a corner. Absolutely. Can be a little bit interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's Sorry. funny because I just bought a um, a sports car like last July and I used to have um, a Jeep. So it was funny. I would always drive the Jeep because I, I didn't want to put the miles on the sports car. And it was, to your point, <laughs> it was so expensive. The gas was so much more expensive. Right. I could beat the Jeep up and I just moved and I had to sell a Jeep. So oh. it's been kind of like sad, and well, now I'm putting all these miles on the sports car. Well,
2: I'll make you feel bad. I got to keep the Jeep, so I have the best of both worlds. If that's I, nice. If I want to run over some curbs and not care what, what I'm doing in a parking lot, I can take the Jeep.
0: See, my car's gone ridiculous. It's actually getting a full roll cage, and uh, <laughs> it's had all the interior. Oh, ripped that's out very of it. cool. Yeah, it's going full track car.
2: It's Good a for ridiculous. you. That's fantastic. We should exchange yeah. pictures. Oh, <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So two more questions. Um so are you going anywhere interesting soon?
2: Am I going anywhere interesting soon? Um uh not i mean i think it's interesting but my wife and i i don't know what it uh what it is i think that there's something in the in the um in the air in toronto but uh, torontonians love florida and i never thought that i would love it as much as we do but um we are canadian snowbirds we love taking trips to florida whenever we can and we did this winter and we'll probably be back down but uh, what we like to do is actually experiment and try some um some different places so last time we went was sarasota and now we're thinking maybe marathon uh or maybe the keys will will sort of make our choice but um Have you been
0: up to the panhandle yet
2: no no and so yeah well, the, so we want to try yeah, something buddy. different yeah
0: go to go to go like uh, either if you're really really cool seaside mm-hmm. is stunningly cool like looks like a little european village yep. nestled in the panhandle of florida it's yeah. absolutely stunning
2: i think that uh, wasn't a movie film there i remember yeah, my um truman show
0: truman show there that's you go.
2: right i i seaside is a place my wife was showing me on a on an ipad the other day and trying to convince me to go and i i'm easily convinced so uh, i think it uh, i think that might be in the cards for sure
0: it's only a five hour drive from my house
2: well there you go <laughs> maybe i'll maybe i'll drive the car and we can
0: take. there you it. go hey oh I, there's some there's within <laughs> within about four hour drive from here in birmingham there's five decent tracks actually one of only two f1 certified race courses in the u.s is actually in birmingham called wow. barber motorsports park very cool oh yeah sorry aaron i'm gear all
2: right i think adorable. we just i think we just invented a new podcast frankly
0: <laughs> <laughs> click and clack we could yeah. have our uh, car show podcast
1: oh i love oh that was a great show <laughs> it was that was really like quality it. yes and then so one last question so what show are you currently binging on
2: Ooh that's a great question. We uh we do love our Netflix here at home. Yeah. Um binging is probably the wrong word but there's a there's a, a very good uh series uh called Mindhunter on Netflix. And um there's only one season but I know it's been renewed for a second and it's about um um sort of uh the the beginning of the fbi's sort of uh profiling division and so as my life has now been uh i've been sucked into the world of um cyber uh cyber security and all the things that i need to worry about this is sort of like the uh uh the first sort of iteration of that just thinking of how the how the human mind thinks about doing bad things yeah yeah that's a great
1: show i do love that show
2: yeah beautifully filmed yep
1: Yeah, yeah, totally great. I love like a good period show, mm-hmm. you know, with the cards and the outfits and everything, the style. I just love it. Yeah, I absolutely. It. Well, Greg, we can't thank you enough for being on our podcast and taking the time to talk to us about the Globe and Mail. It's been incredibly interesting. And I there's nothing better than just hearing this great insight that you have and how you've progressed over the past five years and the success you've had. So thank you very much for everything. And we'll
2: talk to you soon. Well, thank you both. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks.
0: For more information, check out bigdatabeard.com. And as always, use promo code PCBeard for any O'Reilly, Strata Data, or AI conference pass, and you'll get a 20% discount. The music from this episode is from Andrew Bell. Check him out in iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard.